Hi, my name is Tom Jennings and this is the 24th Brainscast and this is going to be the next episode in the Criterion Roundup with a look at the March 2012 releases. I just need to preface this show because it's going to be a lot shorter than normal and there are reasons why. Number one is that there was a release this month of a David Lean box set which I'm not going to be looking at because after I'm done with Ridley Scott, I will be doing a David Lean retrospective. Don't worry, I'm not going to be going my way through the every kind of British director that's ever been knighted. It's just that he was next on the list. And um, for, for good reason, really, is that I haven't really watched many David Lean films for quite a long time. And he is one of my favourite directors. And this is going to be the year, hopefully, where we see Lawrence of Arabia come out on Blu-ray. And I just thought it was kind of like a nice time to go back to him. So I won't be looking at that release. And uh, there was another re-release as well of A Night to Remember. Um, I'm going to be reviewing that on an episode in a couple of weeks, the Blu-ray of that, as well as a look at Titanic 3D in that episode. So I wanted originally to kind of extend the running time of this show a little bit by doing a look at The Last Temptation of Christ as well, which was re-released on Blu-ray. And... I tweeted out actually that um, I thought The Last Temptation of Christ was one of the worst films I ever saw and I got a reply from Hunter from the Midnight Movie Cowboys kind of asking me, um, well basically informing me that he would be informing me of why I was wrong uh, during this episode and it's not that I'm kind of backing away from Hunter's challenge, it's just that I simply don't have enough time at the moment to do this episode because I am actually in the process of recording and editing and prepping the second part of the Ridley Scott uh, retrospective which will be hopefully hitting the feed next Monday. I did say some time ago that that, was the, that next Monday would be the release date and we are on track but um, it is a, a bit of a kind of back to the wall at the moment so it might go over to the Tuesday I don't know hopefully it will be the Monday though because um, it's certainly been a labour of love this episode and has been fraught with disasters and I will tell you about those more when, uh, when you hear it but so after all that there was only two new spine numbers this month and I'm going to begin with spine number 601 which was Mikhail Kalatozov's Letter Never Sent. My exposure to Russian cinema has really come from two directors, Sergei Einstein and Andrei Tarkovsky and there's been a few other little kind of the old film here especially uh, Man with a Movie Camera and I can't remember who directed that but it's like a documentary um, type of an affair which is a really kind of interesting uh, I suppose experiment in what you can actually do with the uh, film medium, hence I guess why it's called Man with a Movie Camera. But I haven't really kind of got that far into Soviet cinema and to be honest with you I do find it sometimes quite hard to kind of break into certain foreign cinema and certainly Russian has been quite a, a tough one. Certainly the films of Andrei Tarkovsky, they are I think kind of quite punishing viewings in terms of the fact that you're kind of acutely aware that when you're watching those films, they aren't sort of entertainment in the uh, strictest sense of the word, but they are incredibly rewarding to watch. It's certainly the same with Sergei Einstein. I absolutely love The Battleship Potemkin. I would probably say it's one of my favourite films. It is, um, even today, I, I really do think it kind of stands up as being a pretty unique film, and certainly it obviously launched a, uh, I suppose, worldwide interest in what Soviet cinema was about. In preparation for this episode, I went back and I watched Kalatozov's other film in the Criterion Collection, which is The Cranes Are Flying, and I was kind of absolutely bowled over by it, because prior to that I had just watched Orson Welles' film, The Trial, and I was amazed at how well directed The Cranes Are Flying was. It was this kind of, I, I don't know, kind of like an explosion really to me in terms of how 
kinetic the camera was, the kind of the angles, the kind of uses a lot of handheld stuff and really crafted, I thought, what was quite a moving story. I did think the film had some problems, um, namely I think that you, I was always consciously aware whilst I was watching it of the hand of the Soviet censors were all over it because it was, I, for all the kind of the great work it did, I thought the ending was just almost, almost ridiculous and I kind of expected a kind of um, an image of Lenin to be superimposed over the final credits but but overall, I was really surprised with the film. And I, I think it just showed my naivety when it comes to kind of Russian cinema, because I didn't think that, I suppose, directors were allowed to be so experimental with what they were doing. And in a way, that's a completely preposterous kind of thing to think anyway, because, you know, talking about the films, I was just saying, you know, Man with a Movie Camera, this work of Einstein, especially the Tarkovsky stuff, you know, these are incredibly personal experimental films. So I don't know really why I was so surprised, but... I think it kind of really, I suppose it sort of says more about the fact that I need to sort of watch more films from Russia. And and when I saw that there was a lot of people on various kind of forums and sites saying that Letter Never Sent was Kalatozov's, I suppose, best film and certainly uh, better than The Cranes of Flying, I was really excited to watch it. And certainly when I read the synopsis, I was kind of quite, uh, I suppose, instantly intrigued as to what it was going to be like. The film revolves around four geologists packed off to Siberia to try and find diamonds for the motherland. They include Sergei, Titania, her lover Andre, and Constantine. And the guys set off and get dropped off on a helicopter, sorry, and we instantly see the, I suppose, isolation of where they are. There is absolutely nothing around them other than trees and water. And Quite quickly, we begin to realise that Sergei is a little bit unstable. He has a woman he loves back in Moscow who doesn't reciprocate his advances. And he kind of tortures himself thinking about her all the time. And he has a little bit of a thing for Titania. And obviously this causes a clash with Andre. One day, Titania and Sergei are digging in a ditch looking for some diamonds and... Sergei makes a, I suppose, a inappropriate gaze at Titania before running out the trench slightly embarrassed with himself. Whereupon Titania finds what they are looking for in the form of a diamond. They radio back headquarters telling them of their find. They are all obviously ecstatic at what they have done. They begin to fantasise about the hero's welcome they will get. They even postulate that they will build a place called Diamond City on the location where they have found the precious stones. However, they wake up and find that the forest around them is on fire and the fact that there is a thousand kilometre long forest fire raging. So they decide to try and escape the inferno and I won't begin to spoil what happens, but needless to say, this is quite a tough journey for them to get out. The radio doesn't work, they can only receive messages and rather annoyingly, they keep hearing the team who are trying to rescue them saying that they are going to be at various locations. Unfortunately, however, they don't actually know the whereabouts of these emergency escape locations. So they set off into the wilderness. Who will survive and will they be able to get back to headquarters to tell them where the diamonds are? What surprised me most about Letter Never Sent was the fact that this felt like a kind of pure genre piece, i.e. an adventure film. 
And again, having watched many Andrei Tarkovsky films, in fact, I've watched all of them, I think there's only eight or something, it would be, it's almost impossible really to kind of say what genre they are. And I, I suppose I assumed, again, in my own naivety, that that would be the case for most Russian films. However, Letter Never Sent is actually a really entertaining piece of work. It is also a quite remarkably directed film as well. What I loved about The Cranes of Flying was the kind of the, the immediacy that Kalatozov was able to kind of get by getting the camera really close to the protagonist and going for this kind of handheld look. And obviously it's something I think we take for granted now, but even for these familiar eyes, I still found it very refreshing and crucially it felt like style that was being implemented for a very good reason. And now I think, you know, obviously we kind of, we, we slag off directors, don't we, when they kind of, clearly the camera operator is moving the camera unnaturally to give it this kind of faux natural look. But here I felt that the handheld stuff really adds to the tension and the inherent drama of what is going on. In a way, the wilderness that they are walking through suddenly becomes incredibly claustrophobic with the way in which the camera kind of glides past trees and never kind of like pans up to show the kind of the vast expanse of the sky. And obviously we do, we do have these scenes where we have some, some wide shots, but it just it really impressed me how the characters felt like they were in this natural prison. And one of the kind of the films that I kept thinking about as I was watching Letter Never Sent was Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, because if you listen to the film, it has a very similar soundtrack and I, I I almost wonder whether when they were making Apocalypse Now they did actually kind of hear this and um, was it Coppola's father who did the score I think it was wasn't it who scored Apocalypse Now and it has that kind of mad disorientating effect and and Kalatozov does something which I normally can't stand when directors I'm not a big fan of fades as a method of editing and a lot of the time some of the images on screen are mixed together and invariably it is a scene of fire even when there isn't the any moments where the uh, the forest is actually on fire he will superimpose fire over the image and it's a kind of like surrealist touch almost but it's also i think warning us that there is something going on and i've in the kind of the time that I've watched the film, I have sort of tried to think about the kind of the metaphor and the meaning of it. And what one thing I, I guess I got out of this is that as they kind of journey through the forest trying to escape the fire, we see various seasons really. It actually ends, the film actually ends up with snow and ice. And I was suddenly kind of acutely aware of the fact that this really is a kind of nature fighting back film. And we kind of, we, we've seen this type of thing before and explored many times. But here, I think the execution, I did think was really quite unique. And really, you have to salute Kalatozov because Moss Film, who obviously produced the film, I should imagine were something of a nightmare because obviously this is a state organization. And the film does certainly extol the virtues of the Russian worker. These guys, they're incredibly brave. They are totally dedicated to their cause. But I think Kalatozov is also smuggling in some slightly more, not so much subversive, but 
something which I think perhaps may have caused a little bit of problems with the sensors in that whilst they're obviously out there doing this, they are looking to kind of plunder natural resources for their own gain. And invariably, I suppose, even we have the mention of the kind of the Diamond City, and there is a moment as well where we see some kind of industrialised town. And you can imagine, I think, that he was trying to suggest that perhaps that rinsing the earth of its natural resources is to some degrees a crime against nature. However, this is obviously quite kind of heroic stuff as well, as they are kind of intrepidly going forward. The kind of the primary aim of them wanting to kind of get out of this is so that they can get the coordinates of where they felt the diamonds to the authorities. So obviously they can kind of realise their dream of being immortalised. And I suppose that that must be the hand of Moss Film, and it's the same hand which I think I noticed so much in The Cranes Are Flying. And in a way, I've just obviously done um, a close-up episode on Went the Day Well when I was talking about the kind of the propaganda film. And although I think it is slightly propagandist in tone, I saw, I do kind of forgive it a little bit because I still think after all that kind of um, state-sponsored interference, this is an incredibly personal film and an incredibly entertaining piece as well. It kind of reminded me of the kind of recent Peter Weir film, The Way Back, which is a really kind of underrated action-adventure um, story about some prisoners actually escaping from Siberia, going all the way to India. And I was kind of made aware that this was, you know, I, I suppose living in Russia during the Cold War, I always envisaged it as being um, a fairly miserable place to live. I'm sure people did have a good laugh and a good time, but I think obviously the Western propaganda has worked quite well on me because I do sort of imagine grey tower blocks and everyone just going to work, coming home drinking 300% vodka and uh, going to bed underneath a picture of Lenin. And I should imagine that a letter never sent was um, caused quite a stir because this actually really kind of felt like a um, bit like Scott of the Antarctic or something like that. And I would imagine that uh, this was kind of pretty good escapist entertainment for the uh, the somewhat repressed masses of Russia. And obviously I'm basing that on a completely stereotypical image. They might have gone and watched it and thought it was complete bollocks, but I was certainly, as a uh, cinema lover, still pretty much taken with it 50 years later. And it has, I suppose, a real epicness to it as well, because it is only about 95 minutes long, but it has a, a scale to it and a heart to it in that it kind of invests in the characters. You kind of you do get to know them at the beginning. They are obviously slightly different, but I was genuinely rooting for them to get through. And it was, I suppose, the fact that you can empathise with people from communist era Russia that I, I suppose shows how accomplished a filmmaker Kalatozov is because that's quite some feat to pull off, really. When you know, and despite the fact that they are obviously obviously doing this for the uh, the motherland. You do want them to complete their mission because it would obviously kind of make true what they are fantasizing about at the beginning of being heroes of Russia. I was also really impressed with how well they used the location in the film because there's no real uh, special effects shot. There's a few, I think, superimpositions when they're talking at night, but the fire scene was ridiculously impressive. And I and I, I'm probably pretty certain that they kind of did just set a light to a set of, an area of woodland and got the actors to move through it because you really feel the danger. And this isn't that kind of Hollywood backdraft fire that kind of spews out and just licks the uh, 
fireproof outfits of the heroes. There was a genuine sense that there was a real danger and a peril to the way they were moving. And as well, when the kind of the snow and ice comes along, um, at one stage, I, I, I was pretty convinced I could actually see them just shivering and shuddering. And I got the impression that that wasn't fake. I really did sort of, if, well, if it was fake, then it's tremendous acting. But you feel the cold coming off the screen. And well, yeah, what a great kind of uh, juxtaposition of hot and cold. But, but overall, I was so impressed with this film visually that I can definitely see myself going back to it because... It's rare that you see something that kind of really can, really seems fresh and new in this age, especially, you know, we've, cinema's been with us now a very long time, and I, I find it increasingly hard to be surprised with films, and this one certainly did. And it's a shame, really, because this disc is a real kind of bare-bones edition from Criterion. There is a booklet um, that comes with it that's quite an interesting read, and that's about it um, in terms of what you get obviously it's a fantastic um restoration and decent sound the image looked perfect here i only watched it on the standard def and dvd i have heard that the blu-ray is incredibly good but i was a little bit disappointed because i wanted to kind of find out a lot more about kalatov and it would have been quite interesting i think if they included some kind of um you know making of or retrospective about his career because like i said at the beginning really my um, knowledge of Russian cinema isn't that great and this is certainly a director whose work I can see myself uh, seeking more of but overall a really interesting genuinely entertaining film I think if you are looking for a uh, well I think if you have a kind of a prejudice towards um, foreign cinema I think this is one of the films that might help you kind of get over that hurdle and you know it may even kind of spark an interest in you that leads to um, getting into a director like Tarkovsky because Certainly, I would say that although I would, I, I'd be lying if I said I found Tarkovsky films particularly entertaining, but they are incredibly fascinating pieces of work. And I'm actually making a short film in September. And if I was to write down now some of my influences for that, I would probably put films as diverse as Michael Mann's Heat and Andre Tarkovsky's Mirror. So I certainly think there is a lot in there if you are interested in film and filmmaking. So moving on to Criterion Spy number 602, Chris Hedges and D.A. Pennebaker's The War Room. Now, American politics fascinates me for many, many reasons, mainly because it is so different to how politics here works. Because, and although actually I would say that I think um, we are becoming increasingly more like the American system here in that, I can see elections in the UK becoming more and more about personality contests, which they seem to be in America. But one of the things that just amazes me about American politics is how fucking long it takes for the process to work. I cannot see how it is of any benefit whatsoever to have the campaigning to become the heads of the party. Why can't they just elect whoever is going to be the leader of the party within the party? Have these long protracted elections just to decide who is going to run in the election. And I watched um, the Republican Party um, debates this year. And just on a side note, fucking hell, I, I, I really, really, really hope that um, Mitt Romney doesn't get in. Just, I mean, he's, he's only 
slightly insane. The other ones were just incredible. But I sat there watching it and they were talking about how much money they were spending on all this kind of campaigning and um, TV adverts and whatnot. And I just sat there and thought, wouldn't it be far more productive for everyone if the party just votes and puts you in? Then you go. Because the other thing as well, they stand in front of each other and just tear each other to shreds. And you're sort of thinking you're just creating divisions within your own party. It's completely mad. And then you have the actual election for the president, which goes on and on and on. And then it's like they get elected and then you have to wait like, some, like was it two months, three months before they actually get in in Britain? And you know, I'm not saying that our political system is perfect, far from it. But, you know, when David Cameron and the coalition came in the last government, they were talking about what actually happens in number 10. And basically, as soon as they know who's won, the then Prime Minister drives to Buckingham Palace, resigns. The new Prime Minister comes in, has a quick chat with the Queen, and then literally goes into number 10. And that's it. There's no delay. The delay's like an hour. And from what I've, from what I've been told, the people who work in number 10 literally get a box and told to fill it and fuck off there and then. And that's it. The whole thing's done. You wake up the next day. There's probably a press conference. We move on. In America, it just goes on and on and, on. and like I said, it fascinates me to an extent, but I just sort of think, Christ almighty, it, does it really have to take all this money and all this effort? So, what has this got to do with the war room? Well, for those of you who don't know, D.A. Pennebaker is one of the most important figures in cinema history. And I'm going to have to go on another little rant now, because I obviously go on a lot of kind of Facebook pages blogs and websites and talk about film with people and invariably it is the same names that come up over and over again as being the kind of the pioneers the the kind of the leading lights in film and invariably you get the likes of fucking George Lucas Steven Spielberg and all James Cameron and I'm not denying the fact that these guys have advanced film. They've also, I think, done irreparable damage to film as well. And I won't kind of, you know, go into too much detail or kind of give specifics. But I think people who are cine literate will know what I'm talking about. Yet D.A. Pennebaker is as important, as, as revolutionary as any of those. And I really get quite annoyed when people don't seem to kind of recognise, not people who don't deserve to be unsung heroes of cinema, they deserve to be heroes of cinema. And, you know, I, I would not sit here now and proclaim that I know everything there is to know about cinema. I've got a lot to know, for example. I like, you know, when I say about Russian films, you know, my, my kind of naive attitude to them, or I haven't watched a great deal of silent cinema. It's something that I'm actually kind of rectifying at the moment. I've been devouring the films of F.W. Murnau, but I think I have a willingness to try and expand my film palette. And a lot of people don't seem to have that kind of intrigue or desire. And I think it comes down to the fact that people are afraid that they're not going to be entertained. They feel that the films have to entertain them to an extent. They don't think that you can actually watch something and appreciate it on other levels. And that is why people like D.A. Pennebaker don't get the kind of the attention that they deserve. Now, why anyway is he such a kind of a revolutionary figure? Well, it is the way in which he and the likes of the Maysales brothers and people like that changed the way in which the documentary medium was both captured in terms of the technical equipment used and the intellectual ideology that was behind their work. 
Pennebaker and his contemporaries wanted to bring a sense of realism to documentary that meant that they didn't want to interfere with what was going on. They are not at all present in any of their films, only if, for example, they are kind of filming and you see them reflected. They don't prompt their subjects. They don't tend to kind of try and artificially manipulate a situation as a lot of documentary filmmakers do. But what they really did as well was they made actually custom made their own kind of lighting camera sound recording devices so that they could get really kind of involved in the action and the best film I think to really seek out from Pennebaker is Primary which was when he was following John F Kennedy around when he was seeking the nomination for the Democratic Party I think it was in 1961 let me just check hang on okay it looks like it was made in 1960 but it is certainly quite a interesting film and I will actually post it up on the blog because um, I think you can see it on YouTube or Google videos or something like that. But I will put it in the notes for this. So come actually, in fact, yeah, just check it out on there because certainly it's a fantastic introduction to Pennebaker and his work. And you can certainly see the kind of the stylistic difference in the way in which he goes about shooting documentaries. So... When I saw that The War Room was going to be in the collection, I was really excited because I've never actually seen it before. And obviously this being an election year, what a kind of a good time to bring it out. So what is The War Room actually about? Well, essentially it is the story of Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential election campaign. And The War Room was a concept which his campaign team kind of put together which was rather than sort of stage managing his election campaign um, by kind of planning it out in advance what they would basically do would be to set up a headquarters and obviously there would be some forward planning but they would basically react to the campaign with an immediacy and a sense of vigour and urgency that had never really been done before and primarily the film revolves around two consultants James Carville who is a very amusing quite kind of quirky guy from I think he might be from somewhere like Louisiana he certainly has a very kind of southern American drawl and he is really trying to kind of change the way in which the Democrat Party have gone about an election. So they do really kind of attack and are quite bullish towards the opposition, namely um, George Bush Senior, who was the president at the time. And his kind of director of communications is a young chap called George Stephanopoulos, who he surely has to be the basis of the Rob Lowe character in the West Wing. I can't believe that he isn't in some ways because he not only does he actually kind of look like a bit like Rob Lowe, he's very young, very kind of forward thinking in his ideology. And essentially the film just follows Clintons through this election period. Well, it certainly follows the team through this election period. Bill Clinton does turn up in it a few times, but he is by no means the most prominent person in it, which I think is really quite one of the master strokes of the film because it's it sometimes i mean i guess it, it would be the obvious person to follow but you, you can imagine that 
Clinton wouldn't have been as kind of open as can and as candid as you would expect, especially this being an election thing. Because you know, I suppose what kind of dangers could the filmmakers you know use? They could you know capture him doing something and uh, you know try and uh, wrong foot his campaign. So it's infinitely more interesting seeing these guys at work and work they do. There is no denying that these are absolutely ferociously dedicated to their work and what I really find fascinating about this is how lots of the things they are talking about and doing in the film seem so ordinary and it almost like they've become the the norms now of political science but at the time they were completely revolutionary and just to give you an example there is a kind of a scene in the film where they discover through um I think it's a Brazilian news channel that George Bush is using a Brazilian factory to publish some of his publicity materials. And this kind of, kind of coincides with Bush talking about trying to give Americans jobs and what have you. And literally, as soon as this moment happens, Carville and Stephanopoulos and all the crew are working on the case to try and make this the most embarrassing and damaging thing to the Bush campaign. Now, you would probably say that, uh, I think it's even alluded to in one of the uh, special features actually, that you it, you wouldn't bat an eyelid now, but at the time this was kind of political gold and they actually ring up the Republicans to try and kind of taunt them and get you know sound bites out of them and to try and show them up all the time. And you're watching it and it, it just really kind of pulls you in. And obviously, you know, we well, we know through history that Clinton won the election, but there was a sense really when I was watching the war room that I felt the excitement, especially leading up to when the kind of the results are coming in and you can see all the hard work. And it was kind of genuinely a, an air of suspense about it. It's just a shame that um, really that all of their hard work would kind of to an extent be slightly undone with um, Clinton, because I think if you sort of look at the Clinton legacy, um, in, indeed, in, in one of the features, again, someone says, you know, what, what was it you preferred, the kind of the peace or the prosperity? But let's not forget this guy did fuck up quite badly in that he was, you know, he's a convicted liar. And I know um, uh, one of my favourite authors, Christopher Hitchens, was very um, hard on Clinton for a number of reasons. And you just sort of think that you see the integrity and the kind of hard work that these people put in. And kind of Clinton would like kind of repay that by um, lying, essentially. And really kind of sullying the name of the um, of his administration. Unfortunately, I suppose you know, everyone gets kind of tired of that brush a little bit. And that was one thing I did take out of it. I was a little bit kind of, I, I did feel a little bit sorry for them. But obviously, you know, these, they're doing what they absolutely love doing. And they are an incredibly entertaining, jovial bunch of people to hang around with. I really kind of, I suppose, won't go into kind of too much detail about the kind of the, the film in particular, because I think it's something that you're better off sort of just watching and absorbing on your own accord. But really, if you're a fan of documentary filmmaking, I think there is a lot to kind of see in Pennebaker's style because he, you know, him and his team, they, they very, very rarely, as I said before, actually appear in their own work. They, you do honestly get the idea that they are just fly on the wall. And that is the type of style, I suppose, which, you know, again, we take it for granted now, the kind of the fly on the wall, invisible documentary. And oh, it's also, I think, incredibly rewarding 
watching documentary films like this because when I think about films by like Michael Moore, Werner Herzog, uh, Morgan Spurlock, they are very strong personalities that come over in their work and in turn sometimes the personality detracts from the importance of what their films are actually about because you know I was watching um, the Michael Moore film Sicko and I think that is such a incredibly important film especially in how it kind of shows the American health system and it's kind of mind-boggling to to me that a country as advanced as America could have such a fundamentally awful healthcare system but unfortunately again what happens with Sicko is that the importance of its message gets diluted because invariably it becomes a personality film do you like Michael Moore or don't you and it seems to me that the kind of the more important issues kind of get brushed aside really and in the war room you just get to observe the action and make your own mind up for better or for worse in a way because a lot of what they are doing in the film is character assassination and unfortunately I think this is creeping into British politics. During the last election we actually had the first televised debates between the three leaders and it was really press a button for which one you like the most. I don't think people really really digested what they were saying and there was a brilliant scene in the film where Clinton in fact, I don't even know if it is in the film. It might be on one of the extras. Or certainly, I think you see them talking about it in the film. But it's certainly definitely in this package where there's a Q&A and a debate going on. And a woman gets up and she starts talking. And George Bush gives her quite kind of brushes her off a little bit. Yet Clinton comes from behind his lectern and moves out to the woman, looks her in their eyes and talks to her. And apparently it was this moment where people were absolutely going crazy for it because they felt like this was a president who could connect and talk to people on a personal level. And, you know, obviously Clinton um, had his kind of problems during this election. There is the incredible Jennifer Flowers affair. Fucking hell, where this woman come from is unbelievable. But she claims that kind of um, Clinton was having an affair with her. And I have never seen a set of shoulder pads on a human being like this woman they look like, I'm sure if, if anyone who's seen the uh, Flash Gordon, the Mike Hodges film from the 80s, they have like dwarfs on leads and what she's wearing actually makes her look like one of them. And her hair, honestly, her fringe is just unbelievable. It's like, I don't know, it's, like, it, it's kind of thing, if it was in space, NASA would send an, a probe there to try and find out if there was life on it. Absolutely incredible. These characters come out and they look ridiculous now. And there is something out of Dallas or something like that. But it's just seeing how they react to these situations and how they kind of get away with it. And you also get the sense of the kind of the underhand tactics from both sides to show the other one up. And really, it, I would say this film appeals to me on two levels. Number one, it appeals to the kind of the interest I have in political science and two, the process behind documentary filmmaking. And I suppose when you have kind of two interests like that clash, it makes for an incredibly compelling film and I really cannot recommend it enough because it also comes chock-a-block with features including a brilliant documentary in itself called Return of the War Room which was made in 2008 in which you learn that Carville is actually, his partner was one of the Republican um, election team working with Bush. 
and it's quite fascinating to talk um, to hear them kind of talk about it because obviously two completely different ideologies and yet they sort of obviously have a very um, happy and lasting relationship and it's just interesting because sometimes I will openly admit it sometimes my opinion of people um, is quite frankly lowered quite a lot by their political views when someone says that they believe in certain things it really kind of makes me think twice about the person sometimes which is completely the wrong thing because I'm sure my political views completely um, offend some people as well you know I've had a, my girlfriend and I were having a debate the other day about capital punishment she seems all for it and I was saying what a kind of a disgrace it was but sometimes what I find if it's someone else who's sort of telling me that they're all up for capital punishment I sort of I, I don't know I lose a bit of respect for them on the basis that it, it's not the same opinion that I have which is totally ridiculous and what you see uh, in Return of the War Room is that the fact that these kind of this couple are able to kind of coexist um, when they have such opposing political ideologies but it's fascinating because it certainly shows the impact of the film and there's some other great um, discussions there the filmmakers have a kind of a roundtable discussion on the uh, challenges that were involved in making it there's a panel discussion in which you have kind of Carville um, one of Clinton's advisors and in, including actually Bill Clinton turns up and there's also another really interesting interview which is with a strategist called Stanley Greenberg and it's all about the kind of the way in which the polling system works within Washington. And it really, you know, I mean, like I said before at the start of the episode, I have a real interest in American politics. And this certainly um, has stoked that interest quite a lot. And I would certainly recommend getting hold of it and indeed anything by D.A. Pennebaker. So yeah, that is going to be it for this month's look at the Criterion releases. And obviously I will be doing my normal thing, which is making my recommendation of the month now. On the basis of the films, I would probably have to say I would be more inclined to check out Letter Never Sent. However, I think just in terms of how good the features are on the war room and how I think this is a very good entry point for people to get into the films of D.A. Pennebaker, I'm going to go with the war room because, like I said, I think it is a really genuinely fascinating piece. I think it should really sort of prompt you to check out more of his work and in an election year I suppose it might be quite a uh, pertinent film to check out but I would have to kind of put over a caveat do uh, either rent or somehow get hold of Letter Never Sent because I think again that film will really surprise you but after all that that is going to be it for this week's episode of the 24 Frames cast I hope you enjoyed it uh, email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. Come over to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. I will post up primary on the um, entry for this release, so you might be able to check it out there. And uh, and I'm now going to hunker down and get on with the Ridley Scott retrospective part two. Hopefully the next time you hear my voice, it will be next Monday, and there will be about just over two hours of Ridley Scott. A few people have asked me what uh, part of Scott's career this episode is going to actually be covering. It's going to be from someone to watch over you to G.I. Jane. And the name of the episode is The Good, The Bad and The Underrated. Anyway, hopefully you will hear it next Monday. So many thanks and I will speak to you soon. Bye.